You have to forgive me this morning. I'm uh, a bit nasally, maybe a little more nasally than, uh, than normal. We did this little uh, kayaking excursion this past weekend, and we we're going to do this thing where they flip you upside down to make sure you can get out of the boat. And the kayaking instructor looked at me and said, do you want to put on a nose plug? And I said, nose plugs are for sissies. And so I, 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 I was upright and good, went under and came back up, and I sounded like this. And uh, it just hasn't went away. So you know what the lesson in there is? Pride. Lots of pride. And pride will cost you. You know, there, there may not be anything in the whole world that is less natural than forgiveness. By nature, we are vindictive, vengeful, record-keeping people, aren't we? I think maybe the way this is kind of most clearly seen in our lives is, is what are you more likely to remember? The good that someone has done for you or the bad that they have done to you? Are you more likely to remember the people and, and all of the, the positive things and the encouragements that they've brought into your life and the blessings that they've brought into your life and the graces that they've brought into your life and the kindnesses that they've brought into your life? Or are you more likely to remember that one time when they were having a bad day and they kind of said something that was out of the way to you? It's amazing, isn't it? I think all of us do that. Maybe there's, there's one or two of you that you're like joyful freaks and like you don't really worry about all that. But I think for the most part, all of us have a tendency to really obsess over the negative and to forget about the positive that people do, right? And so maybe it's a, a pastor or it's a brother or sister in Christ, your, your teacher, uh, a fellow church member, and, and they did something one time and like they may have brought a lot of good into your life and done a lot of positive things for you, but when you see them, the only thing you really think about is that negative, that bad day, that bad conversation, that day when it kind of hits you, hits you funny. Maybe it's that way with your parents or it's that way with your, with your friend at work or your coworkers, whatever it is. But you have, we have a tendency to kind of obsess over the negative and to discard the positive. And I think it's because by nature we are unforgiving, vindictive, grudge holder, holding, resentful, bitter people. And so as Jesus is going to talk this morning to his disciples, as rivalry has kind of bubbled up to the surface among his disciples, Jesus is going to teach them about what it takes for them to coexist in the Christian community. And he's going to teach us this morning how it is that we can coexist together in the same church, how we can coexist together in the same home, how we can coexist as we grow in godliness together and as we pursue godliness together, how it is that we can kind of coexist and not just, just, just survive it, not just endure it, not just hold it at arm's length, but to actually thrive and find joy in one another. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to finish Matthew 18 this morning and this discourse on the Christian community by coming to a very, very powerful story. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 18, we're going to begin in verse 21. Would you stand with me in honor of reading God's inerrant and all-sufficient word? In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21, God's inerrant word says, Then Peter came, came up and said to him, Lord, how often will, I, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, 
I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your hearts. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. This may just be the most penetrating and poignant parable that Jesus tells. For Jesus' disciples that day, it would have stopped them dead in their tracks. For us today, it stops us cold and convicts us almost immediately as we can scroll through the Rolodex of our minds and remember all of the people that we continue to hold grudges against or resentment toward or bitterness from. He tells the story uh, because of a, a question that Peter brings to him. You'll remember that Jesus here is talking again about life in the Christian community, life because of conflict that had arisen among them. They were wanting to know who was the greatest of all of the disciples. And so Jesus had been teaching them about humility, about greatness in the community, about how it is they are to relate to one another. He had related God to the pursuit of a, of a, of a flock of sheep, that there were a hundred sheep and one went wayward, one, went, one strayed, and how the shepherd went in pursuit of that sheep and brought him back. And he is saying that his disciples should look the same. Last week, as we saw, we, we kind of saw how that pl plays out very practically in the life of the church and in the life of the disciple as we have a brother that sins against us and brings damage into our life and how we are to go to them in pursuit of good for them, that they might be restored into the life of the church. And so what Peter is very simply asking Jesus is how often must I do that? How often must I do that? How often must I live out verse 15? How often must I seek to be reconciled with and to restore my brother that has sinned against me? How often must I overlook or forgive an offense that has come against me, woundedness that has come against me? And Jesus responds by telling this very powerful story. He tells the story of a king 
who has uh, obviously many servants, likely over many nations. And he decides that he's going to settle accounts with those that owe him. And so as he's in the process of settling accounts, he comes upon the account of one particular servant, a servant that owes him 10,000 talents. Now what you need to understand, church, is that 10,000 talents might as well have been a zillion dollars, as some scholars have said. It is an infinite amount. A single talent is about 20 years labor for a a worker. Uh, one, One scholar said that the amount that for this man, if he made an average worker's salary in this day, it would have taken him 60 million days or 195,000 years to have repaid the debt that he owed to the king. And so obviously knowing that he is not going to be able to pay him now, he's not going to be able to pay him later, he's not going to be able to pay him ever, the man throws himself on the mercy of the king. And he pleads with him and he seeks the king's compassion. King, have mercy on me. He appeals to the king's goodness. He appeals to the king's mercy and grace. And the Bible says that the king who looked down at his servant that owed him such an infinite, unpayable debt looks to him and he says, your debt is forgiven. Go, be with your family, live your life. Now, if the story stopped right there, that'd be powerful, right? That in and of itself is a powerful picture of the grace offered to us through Christ Jesus from the Father. That, if we just stop, we put the brakes on it right there, it'd be powerful. But it's what happens next that punches us in the gut, isn't it? See, the very first thing that the servant does is he leaves having been forgiven such a great debt. He goes and he chases down another fellow servant that owes him some. Owes him a hundred denarii. It would have taken, it was a a few weeks worth of work. R.C. Sproul said that it amounts to about $18 in today's money. And so he goes to his fellow servant, having been just forgiven a zillion dollars, and demands him, from him, $18. And it's ironic because the servant reacts the same way that he had reacted. He, He begins to implore him, plead with him, just give me some time. Give me some time, I will pay you back. Give me some time, let me, just be, be patient with me. And yet the servant who had been forgiven such a great debt looks to him and he says, this man needs to go to prison for he has not paid what he owes. Now the other fellow servants around recognize the injustice of it all. They they recognize this isn't quite right. That the man that has been forgiven literally multiple lifetimes worth of debt is ready to imprison a fellow servant over $18. So they go to the king, and the king is incensed. He is enraged. A king that has already shown himself to be good, gracious, and merciful is incensed at the thought of such hypocrisy, of such such cruelty, of such harshness after he had been forgiven so much. 
And so the king comes to the servant and he says, you wicked servant, may you be thrown to the, the bottom. The ESV says jailers. The more literal translation is the torturers until you can pay what you owe. Showing us clearly a picture of the wrath of God that is to come upon those that live out life as this wicked servant lived. Now, in a, when you're interpreting a parable, if you come to the Wednesday night class, we kind of get into this a little bit, but when you're, in, when you're interpreting a parable, the characters are always important. What does Jesus, who is Jesus talking about when he gives us the characters that he gives us? And in our parable, Jesus is explicit. We know exactly who he is talking about. The, the king is God. It is the father that is given to his children, to his disciples, so great a grace, forgiven them of so great a debt. And the fellow servants, those are brothers and sisters in the church. Those are fellow disciples. Those are fellow Christ followers. Those are people that are kind of forgiven, uh, have been forgiven a great corporately and now are in pursuit of this together. And so they're kind of feeling this thing out. And from this story this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to see ourselves as those fellow servants. And I want us to make three observations in the big picture about the nature of forgiveness. I want us to see ourselves as the fellow servants, those that have been forgiven a great debt, that perhaps when someone sins against us, brings hardship against us, has something that they owe to us or have done to us, that we see ourselves as the ones that have been forgiven in the big picture, okay? So observation number one. Gospel forgiven people must be forgiving people. Gospel forgiven people must be forgiving people. Now, when Peter asked Jesus his question, what you need to understand is that Peter thought he was being generous. He thought he was being generous. He goes to Jesus and he says, how often should I forgive my brother? Should I forgive them seven times? Now, that's a lot. As a matter of fact, in Jesus' day, the rabbis taught that forgiveness that you were, you were supposed to, within the, uh, the community of the people of God, you were to offer forgiveness to your fellow countrymen at least three times. Three times. That, that if they sin against you, if they bring offense to you, you are to forgive them a minimum of three times. But after the third time, you can discard that relationship. You can separate yourself from them. You can, you can essentially kind of knock the dust off your feet and be done with that person. So Peter comes to Jesus and he says, not three times, but almost more than double that, seven times, a number of completion, a number that is, that is considered to be large in the, na in, the name of the, uh, in the nature of the Bible, in the context of the scriptures. And so you gotta think, Peter's thinking, look, I'm being generous. Because it's, it's a lot. If you've been offended by somebody seven times, if you've been sinned against seven times by somebody, that's a lot of forgiveness, isn't it? Especially when you think about most of us don't get past number one, Right? Most of us, we get stuck on step A, step one. Like somebody sins against us, they bring what we perceive to be offense to us, hardship to us, and man, we're just done. We're just done. Like, they, that's how they want to be? I'm up out of here. You know, like, I got my own family. I got my own struggle. I ain't dealing with all that, right? Like, one offense, we're done with you. We're cutting you off. We're going to find somebody new. And so Peter's talking about seven. But Jesus is, is obviously perturbed by the question. He doesn't like the question. 
And you can tell this by the, by the directness and the, the deliberate nature of Jesus' response. And I think Jesus doesn't like the question because of what the question implies. You see, we ask questions just like this all the time. Here's what Peter was asking. What is the line of faithfulness for me? What is the bare minimum number that I need to forgive my brother so that I can be considered faithful in the kingdom of God? What is the bare minimum number of times that I need to show grace and mercy so that you'll kind of claim me and we'll be cool? Like, where's that number when I can kind of just push him aside and be done with it? We ask this question like this. How long should I pray? How long do I have to pray? Like, what's the, what's the bare minimum amount of time that I need to pray so that I can be considered a pious Christian? Or, or how often should I come to church? How often do I have to come to church so that I'm considered a faithful person? We're, we're actually seeing now that studies today say that the most faithful Christians come about twice a month. About twice a month. So we ask questions like this. How much, how much do I have to give? What, 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 is the, what is the bare minimum threshold there? And what's the problem with all of those questions? Well, the problem with all of those questions is they undermine grace. The problem with all of those questions is they undermine a heart that is passionate about Christ. They undermine a heart that is, is passionate about the, the kingdom of God and the things of God and about bringing their life in submission and surrender to God. The kingdom of God is not about the bare minimum. The kingdom of God is about laying down your life. The kingdom of God is not about how little can I get away with. It is about how can I spend what I have for the glory of Christ in my time, in my talents, in my energy, in my, my money, whatever it is. How is it that I can take what I have, this little life I have, whether we're dealing about forgiveness or church faithfulness, and offer it to the Lord to maximize his glory in the world? And so Jesus looks back to Peter and he says 77 times. Your, your, your Bible translation might say 70 times seven. It's irrelevant if it's one or the other. What Jesus is saying is it is limitless. There is no limit. There is no limit to the number of times that you must forgive your brother. There is no limit to the number of times that you are to show grace and show mercy and receive forgiveness. There is no limit to the numbers of times that you should go in pursuit of the one that strays from the flock. There is no limit to the one, to the number of times that you should seek to redeem your brother and restore your brother and gain your brother and win him back to the fold. That there is no threshold of forgiveness among my disciples. You see, gracious, merciful living is the requirement of the Christian life. Gracious, merciful living is the requirement of the Christian life. Uh, to, to put this in a negative form would be to say it like this, that Christians do not have the right to bitterness, resentment, and grudges. 
Christians do not have the right to hold offense toward a brother or a sister or anyone in that fact. Because when we came to the cross, when we came to the cross that we nailed Jesus upon, when we came to the cross, we forfeited the right to grudging, grudge holding. We forfeited the right for vindictiveness. We forfeited the right for bitterness. We forfeited the right for resentment. Because think about the cross. What did the cross do? The cross forgave you of a debt that was insurmountable. It forgave you of a debt that would make zillions of dollars owed to a king look like mere peanuts. And so whoever it is that brings offense against you, whoever it is that harms you, that brings sorrow into your life, that brings pain into your life, whatever the scenario is, the debt that they owe to you, the, the offense they have brought into your life pales in comparison to that which the, the, the debt which the cross canceled on your behalf. See, one of the things that I've told you since as long as I've come is that the one thing that separates the Christian faith from every other faith, from every other worldview system, is grace. It's grace. But what I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, is that it is not just a grace received. It is not just a grace experienced. It's not just a grace that cancels out your debt once and for all. It is a grace that is received and it is a grace that is then given. It is a grace that is experienced and it is a grace that is then lived. It is a grace that God extended to you and now you extend over the course of your life so that other people might see grace manifest in you and catch a glimpse of the gospel itself, catch a glimpse of Christ himself in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, and in his offering of mercy and grace to them. This morning, no doubt there are some of you that you're not in the church and you're here this morning for, for, for maybe a variety of reasons and I would just like to thank you for coming. We, we are thankful that you're here. And you're trying to figure out if the Christian thing is, is, is like this mystical thing or is it this like I got to work harder thing or, 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 or like what's the story or kind of what's going on with, with, with dad? What's going on with mom? What's going on with my neighbor? Like what's the situation? Why are these people gathering every week? Who is this Jesus? Can I just offer you this picture of grace? This is, this is what, why we gather. This is who we are. We're not very good at showing it sometimes, but we are people of grace. We are people of grace. And wherever you're from, whatever your story is, whatever your history is, some of you are gonna think you're too young and that you have your whole life ahead of you to, to come to grace. Some of you are gonna think you're too old and that, great, that, that the, you've reached the point of no return, but I'm here to tell you, friend, that God has grace that can consume your sin, that can cover your life, that can reconcile you to him, that can make you whole, that can set you free, that can bring you into the flock so that he will hold Hold you fast. Can I ask you a question? A grace that beautiful and a grace that powerful, why would you wait another day? Why would you turn down an offer like that? 
Jesus does not come to you this morning saying, clean yourself up, work yourself to death, make yourself come, uh, become more polished and cleaner. Jesus comes to you today and says, let me just wash you clean. Let me overcome your struggle. Let me overcome your hardship. Friend, neighbor, don't spurn grace any longer. Don't spurn mercy any longer. Do you see that it does not matter your debt? It does not matter your life. It does not matter your stature. Whatever it is, grace sets you free. Grace cancels it out. Grace washes you clean. And brothers and sisters, members of Iron City Baptist Church, you know what he's teaching his disciples? He's teaching his disciples that as they live together and as they, they kind of endure life's hardships together and as they have good days and bad days, they have a blood sugar crash and a really happy day the next day, like, like all that stuff's happening in the life of the sinner. That the key to unity within the church is grace. Grace. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be a unified church, we must be at the same time a forgiving church. We must be. Can I tell you something? There's going to be days when your pastors are going to offend you. We have bad days. We sin. We say things that we shouldn't say. We do things that we shouldn't, we shouldn't do. And if you're going to be unified with us, you're going to have to forgive us sometimes. There are going to be days in which your church leaders, your elders, your, your deacons, your, your Sunday school teachers, they're going to, they're going to bring offense to you. They're going to bring, they're going to bring uh, perhaps sin against you in some way, bring pain into your life in some way. But listen, if we're going to coexist, if we're going to exist in unity, if we're going to show our community the power of the gospel, the power of grace, the power of mercy, we must resolve to forgive one another as Christ Jesus has forgiven us. You are going to take offense to one another. And the natural reaction will be to want to grow in resentment and grow in bitterness and to hold one another at arm's length. Oh, but brothers and sisters, do you see that robs you of your joy, that robs you of the abundant life in Christ? Forgive one another, be unified with one another, and walk together with one in Christ in our community. It is a grace received and it is a grace lived. A grace given, a grace, grace experienced, and a grace lived. Observation number two. Gospel forgiveness is costly. Gospel forgiveness is costly. Maybe there's somebody here and you're saying this, probably more than one of you. Yeah, it sounds simple in the story. Yeah, it's, it sounds simple when you're talking about it like that. Yeah, yeah, all of that sounds, sounds easy. All of that sounds sensible. But in real life, it's just not that easy. In real life, it's just not that easy. Because you see, you don't know about the pain in my life. You don't know about what my dad did. You don't know about what he said or what he, what he did to me or what he did to my mom. You don't know about how he walked out. You don't know about my husband or my wife. She had an affair, man. He checked out, man. The very people supposed to help me have some identity and security in this world have utterly betrayed me. You don't know about what my Christian friend did to me. 
We went on vacations together, had meals together. They were in my home and I found out they were gossiping about me. I was vulnerable with them and they weaponized my vulnerabilities against me. You don't know about my story. So yeah, forgiveness sounds good. Thank God for his forgiveness, but it's just not like that in the real world. I think that's what Jesus is teaching. That forgiveness is simple, but it isn't easy. Forgiveness is simple, but forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. And what the experiences that you all have had and your various degrees of betrayal and your various degrees of hardship and your various degrees of pain and brokenness in this world is you have come to understand the costliness of, of sin, the costliness of forgiveness. And as loudly as that preaches to us and as loudly as that teaches us, it is the cross that teaches it to us much louder, isn't it? On the cross, what happened? Jesus got what he didn't deserve so that you could get what you didn't deserve. Jesus got what he didn't deserve so that you could get what you didn't deserve. That, that forgiveness, the forgiveness that has been offered to you from God on high came at the highest price. It came at the price of a brut brutal death, the death of Christ and his dignity on the cross so that you might be reconciled, so that your debt might be paid in full, so that you might be made right with God and right with one another and have a grace that is received now. Forgiveness always takes the shape. Forgiveness always takes the shape. Forgiveness always takes the shape because forgiveness by definition means that everybody included doesn't get what they deserve. Forgiveness by its very definition teaches that neither person gets what they deserve. The person that's offended, that, that, that does the offending, that sins against you, doesn't get the repercussions or the consequences or the pain that perhaps you got what they deserve. And you don't get the revenge, the justice, the, the dealing without the, the sorrow and the scars that you deserved. You see, in our text, it talks about settling accounts. The king came and he wanted, to, he wanted to settle accounts. And the Bible teaches us that the king of glory, the ruler of the universe is coming one day and he's going to settle accounts with each one of us. And the question will be, will you go for what you deserve or will you receive what Christ only deserves? That's the difference in being a Christian and being a not, not being a Christian, right? But for us within the Christian community, for those of us who, who bear the Holy Spirit himself indwelling in us, what it means to forgive means to settle accounts with your brother, settle accounts with your sister, settle accounts with your offender, at your own cost. Think about what it was about our story again. The free, the uh, forgiveness that was given wasn't free, was it? It wasn't free. It was freely given to the servant, but it came at a significant cost to the king. Think about the cross. It was is a. Forgiveness that is freely given to us, freely offered to us, if in faith we would just come and take hold of it and surrender our lives to Christ. But it is not a forgiveness that was free to God himself. It came at a high cost to the king. 
And in our relationships with one another, that's what forgiveness is going to look like. It means to settle accounts with somebody and to take on the cost yourself. Most of the time, it means that you have to simply get over it, move past it, let go of it, let it, let it go to the Lord. Very often, the most forgiveness costs us very little other than just getting over ourselves. But then all of us know that there are cases in which it is much deeper than that, in which it is much more significant than that. What do you do when someone has sinned against you so profoundly that it rocks you to the very core of who you are, rocks you to the very core of your identity? What do you do when you have somebody like a husband or a wife or a dad or a mom, a Christian friend, your best friend, who betrays you in such a way that you just can't overlook that and brings pain into your life literally every day? It is shaping the decisions you make and the places that you go and the things that you do. Like, like how do you deal with that, especially when they don't even seem to want your forgiveness? They don't even seem to acknowledge that they've sinned against you. They don't even seem to, it doesn't even seem to bother you. Uh, it doesn't even seem to bother your dad that he walked out. It doesn't even seem to bother your wife that she has went with multiple men that weren't you. It doesn't even seem to bother them. So like, what do you do in that situation? So I think what Jesus is teaching Peter, by saying not seven, but 77 times, he's saying, stop record counting here. So, so stop keeping record. Stop, stop, stop keeping score in all of these things that what I'm calling you to do is to live in an attitude, to live in a posture of forgiveness. I think Paul gets to this in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, when he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. That what Jesus is calling Peter to be is not always reconciled with his brother because sometimes his brother may not want to be reconciled. That's what, that's what happens in verse 17 of our text. When the brother refuses to hear us pleading with him to repent and turn from his sin, he refuses to hear us pleading with him that he might be delivered and restored into the flock. That sometimes he's gonna be resolute, hard-hearted in his sin, unconcerned about you or about the gospel or about Christ or about any of the repercussions. And in that case, you may not be able to be reconciled with him because he may not want to be reconciled. But so far as it depends on you, so far as it depends on you, that whenever he returns, you're ready. That forgiveness has already happened in your heart. That you have already chosen not to obsess over what he has done. You have already chosen not to be resentful over what he has done. You have already chosen not to hold a grudge or to increase in bitterness. I wrote it like this. For you, always have forgiveness on the table. For you, always be willing to be reconciled with those who have wronged you. For you, be just as eager to show mercy as God has been. Refuse to obsess over what they've done. Refuse to linger in the record of their wrongs. Refuse to grow bitter and resentful. As for you, live in a posture and attitude of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. You see, listen to me, brothers and sisters. What I want you to hear from me this morning is that forgiveness is freedom. Forgiveness is freedom. 
right now, you're holding on to the pain, you're holding on to the bitterness, you're holding on to the sorrow because you're thinking, if I let it go, everybody will forget and it'll be like nothing ever happened. Cancel the record on your own account. Offer it up to Christ because Christ has given you grace for that. Some of you, you're, you're holding on to, to bitterness and anger and you're thinking, man, that person needs to hurt. They need to feel something a lot what I felt. And I'm telling you, it's poison in your soul and it's killing you. Forgiveness is freedom. It's freedom from having to hold on to anger and madness. It's freedom from having to hold on to resentment and bitterness. It's freedom from having to obsess over painful memories from your childhood. It's freedom. Now those things are gonna well up in you again. Those thoughts are gonna happen again. Those weak days are gonna be there. But preach the gospel to them, brothers and sisters. Preach the gospel to them. Remind yourself of the grace that has been given. Remind yourself of the grace that has been experienced. Remind yourself of the debt that has been paid. And remind yourself that Christ will hold you fast, that he will be sufficient in all things, even in your hardship. Brothers and sisters, forgiveness, gospel forgiveness is hard but it is liberating. The final observation that I want us to make this morning is that gospel forgiveness must be given in gospel portions. Gospel forgiveness must be given in gospel portions. Peter is coming and he's saying, Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother? And he's saying, as often as I have forgiven you. How much mercy should I show my brother? As much mercy as I have shown to you. How strictly and cruelly should I judge my brother as strictly and as cruelly as you want me to judge you? My disciple, my Peter, my brothers, my children, listen to me. Offer one another the amount of grace that you want, that you have received in the gospel. So he says it's a matter of the heart, right? He says, true forgiveness comes from the heart. That, that, that is that grace has come in and it has so shaped your heart and transformed your heart and sanctified your heart that now your heart is filled with mercy and your heart is filled with grace and it is looking for a, an avenue to extend that to others. And when you extend that to others, it gives them a glimpse of the goodness of God himself. It gives them a glimpse of God himself. So this morning, what does your life say about your heart? What does your life say about your heart? Is your heart filled with bitterness? Or is your heart filled with grace? Is your heart filled with resentment? Or is your heart filled with mercy? Is your heart obsessing over, paying, of, over them paying what they owe? Or is your heart ready and willing to let go of it, offer it up to Christ, and to give them forgiveness for what they have done to you? Are you ready to settle accounts on your own dime? This morning, if you are ready, I'm telling you, you'll be set free. Let's pray together.